Hello, you're listening to Kobe Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taim Rubek, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 55th episode. Today, we will take a dive into perhaps the most important driver of macro dynamics in the world, U.S. government debt. It constitutes by far the deepest pool of global safe haven asset. It is also growing really, really fast. Should we worry about the supply demand situation? How will the U.S. debt risks manifest? To talk about all this and more, we have with us a deep expert on U.S. fiscal policy with us today. Maya McGinnis is the president of the Bipartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget in the United States. As a leading budget expert and a political independent, Maya has worked closely with members of both political parties in the U.S. and serves as a trusted resource on Capitol Hill. She testifies regularly before the Congress and has published in the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times, and The, and the Atlantic. Maya McGinnis, welcome to Kofi Time. Thank you. It's really nice to be with you. Great to have you, Maya. Let's start with some background. Please walk us through the U.S. government deficit and debt path over the past couple of decades, let's say leading up to 2019 pre-COVID. Right. So if you go back long enough to the era where we weren't fiscally responsible per se, but it was a lot more so than now, there was the general belief that basically one wanted to balance the budget over a business cycle. There's nothing magical about balanced budgets. A lot of times people think a group like ours that focuses on fiscal responsibility or being fiscal responsible, fiscally responsible means balancing a budget every year. Certainly not true, and that certainly never was in the history of the country. But it is true that you should borrow at the times where there's a reason to be borrowing. And for a number of years, we were more inclined to do that where we would borrow during emergencies that could be wars, though we also used to raise taxes during wars, we didn't more recently, or during downturns, economic recessions. And then when the economy was stronger again, we would run small budget surpluses in some of those years, not all of them, but some of them. So you'd kind of go along a business cycle. But um, as time has gone on, and as as I'll probably talk a little bit about, because I'm really fascinated with this connection, I think as the political polarization has grown, this has become less the case where it was now, now there is much more of a tendency to borrow even when the economy is strong. That's kind of where we got to today. Um, I'd say in the middle period during the era where we actually did have budget surpluses and started to pay down the debt, one of the biggest commitments that the country had fiscally was pay as you go. If when you're not having emergency spending, you have a new initiative, and that's either spending policy or tax cuts. It was the norm, it was expected, and it was uh, congressional rules, and in some cases the law, that you would offset those costs, paying as you go. Um, and that was combined with spending caps. So in our overall budget, about two thirds of it is mandatory spending or an automatic pilot. One third of it is appropriations, goes through the process where it's approved every year. That one third that needs to be approved also had spending caps. So the growth of that portion of the budget was constrained by caps. So caps and pay go was kind of the rule that kept things generally in check. But as is the case with all budget process restraints, constraints, um, Congress quickly learns ways to get around that and find budget gimmicks and ways to not have to actually comply as strictly as the intention is for them to do so. And so there's been a, a pretty steady deterioration in the past decades where less pay go, less consistency in having caps that are abided by and or realistic caps, 
and more policies that have busted up the budget deficit. I'll just say one more thing quickly, because I know that's a pretty long answer, but we've also had a tendency towards large tax cuts that have not been paid for. And this becomes pretty partisan because that's one political party that is pushing for those Republicans. And then on the other side, not parallel, but a different issue is automatic growth in our healthcare and retirement programs. So these programs without even having improved increases are always growing faster than the economy overall. And that is something that Democrats have been more likely to kind of push and protect. And so this has led to the partisanship of both parties seeing where the irresponsibility comes from, from different lenses, and to some extent, not holding up the mirror and seeing the role that they've also played in contributing to the deterioration of the commitment to generally borrowing for economic reasons um, rather than political reasons. And where we've landed is we borrow a lot for political reasons these days. So my, I want to stay in the past just a little longer. So walk us through the 90s and 2000s. I remember just when we were all finishing grad school and beginning to work were the Clinton years. And toward the end of the Clinton years, the view was that US was going to run out of uh, treasury debt because the surpluses were accumulating and the debt was disappearing. So basically, we are in the year 2000, where US debt to GDP, net debt to GDP, is heading towards zero. And now we're at 100%. Uh, is it basically the Bush tax cuts and the Iraq war or a few other things like the global financial crisis or all of the above? What a great question. It's actually um, where the story of me caring about this issue begins because exactly, I'd finished, I'd finished school, was working in the world of finance on Wall Street and actually was sort of looking, this is in the early to mid 90s, looking at the issues of why we borrow and how we borrow and it started to not make sense at all. I remember the deficit was about $200 billion. And I thought, why? Why are we borrowing that? There's no good reason for that. Boy, would I take a $200 billion deficit today? And then quickly, we suddenly had um, a slew of things. The first thing was we did have some important debt deals that were put in place because people were worried about how this was going to affect the markets, this unsustainable deficit and debt situation. Um, and suddenly those projections changed from deficits into surpluses, and then they materialized. And just as long as we're mocking the idea of paying off the entire national debt, the first op-ed I actually ever wrote, and it was for the, the um, Financial Times or the Washington Post, was we should be very careful not to pay off the whole national debt because the U.S. Treasury market is such a critically important part of the global financial market. Silly me and silly everybody else who was worrying about it, because what we didn't appreciate was Congress will never look at a budget surplus and let it remain in place. They will quickly, quickly find a way to spend it. And they did. And the story is exactly what you laid out. We had large tax cuts. They don't even seem large compared to what we have these days, but we had significant tax cuts um, followed by uh, wars that were not paid for. For the first time, we didn't even make any attempt to pay for these wars and a recession. And all of that wiped away all of those projections because there's a couple lessons there. One, Congress will find a way to spend things. Two, projections are only projections and they're based on a lot of economic assumptions where we don't even build in the business cycle or recessions into those projections so they can disappear very quickly. Um, and three, we should have been focusing on the long-term because when we started that with tax cuts, one thing we had not done yet was shored up big trust funds or uh, ways that we store money for our big retirement and healthcare programs. We should have used those surpluses 
to shore up, set aside money for Social Security and Medicare, which are the big programs that rely on intergenerational transfers, and right now are headed towards trust funds that will become insolvent. It's kind of really short-sighted then to say, oh, we have these big surpluses, it's going to pay off the debt, we need tax cuts. That's an argument for wishful thinking of what you would like. What you should have done is set aside that money. And so what I think the lesson there was things can turn on a dime. Fiscal policy is in many ways about being prepared for the unknown. And so you don't take a projection of optimism and build all your policies around it because things can and did change very quickly. And after that, we had deficits growing as far as the eye could see, which has remained the situation that we have today. And because we're much closer to the baby boomers, the older people retiring in mass, and we're in the midst of it, in fact, it's much harder to see those numbers changing abruptly with all the good news that we had before. And of course, I think we, we forgot to mention like stock market bubble was a huge piece of it that a lot of what brought in so many revenues that got us to surpluses was high capital gains taxes, uh, a bunch of bubbles throughout the economy. Um, and in many ways, I would say we probably have a bubble-filled economy right now. So it's a, it's a good warning sign to look back to, to be reminded of. That's a very good point. I appreciate that because it relates very much to the things that I sort of have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so, okay, Maya, let's sort of come to the current juncture. Uh, so last year, as the pandemic engulfed us, the Trump administration passed a very large fiscal support program. So give us a sense of the magnitude of the response and your assessment of the measures that were passed at that time. Yeah, so I think, um, I think we did a really good job responding to the immediate massive threats of both the pandemic and the slamming shut the economy. So the, the self-induced recession that I think was the right thing to do. Um, and there's the three T's of responding in fiscal policy, timely, temporary, and targeted. And I think a Congress that could barely function and was routinely shutting itself down did a very good job of getting uh, $5 trillion net out into the economy over, over the months of that year very quickly, um, most of it temporary, meaning, and also good policies smart policies that I think were generally effective. Hindsight obviously could have done them differently, but smart, not particularly targeted, but there wasn't the time to make it targeted. So I think Congress did a really good job of making sure that uh, you kind of created a bridge to whenever. I remember in those early days when we thought we would be shutting down for about two weeks, how different this has turned out for all of us. Um, but making sure that businesses that would be viable post-pandemic were able to stay open, that people were able to collect um, incomes to, to the point that we now look at incomes, they actually were higher during the pandemic than they were the year before. So we were able to keep incomes up and alleviate a lot of the hardship that clearly would have existed otherwise. So I would say on bulk, those that first year through the calendar year, the response, I would give an A plus. It really kept us from going into free fall, which could have happened. And obviously there was pain from the pandemic and pain from people who weren't, who, who slipped through the cracks. I think one of the lessons in this is that you need to have systems where it's very easy to get people money quickly. Um, and we saw that we had these state unemployment systems that didn't talk to each other well, and it was much more complicated than it should be. I hope we'll use the coming years to fix those and modernize those systems. But uh, we put a lot of money into the economy. I'm someone who worries about borrowing and fiscal responsibility an awful lot. And that was exactly what we should have been doing. This was the year that borrowing was made for. And unlike the years 
other years where we borrow just because no one wants to pay the bill, this is one we should have been borrowing to help fill in the gaps in the economy. Would you say that qualitatively the 2020 fiscal package was better than the 2008-2009 fiscal response to the GFC? Um, I would say it was more massive in a short amount of time. It's very difficult to say. It was a very, very different kind of downturn, right? So one of them was going to actually have to work through imbalances in order. The, the, the decade ago, we had to work through those imbalances to come out on the other side. This one was a slam it shut and how quickly can you open it? We put more resources in a much shorter amount of time and that created a huge um, high in the economy. Um, and the other, the previous one was more complicated to figure out where the real problems were and how you responded. And also um, a lot of the policies a decade ago that helped the economy exacerbated the income inequality that was going on already. Whereas a lot of the policies this time that helped uh, the economy actually were better for dealing with income inequality. So there was a, local, a preferable alignment of some of your kind of social and economic justice objectives along with economic objectives that made this easier. Yeah, no, we totally see that uh, that sort of targeting much more explicit in this budget than anything else that we've seen in the past. All right, yeah. so coming to 2021, the Biden administration has passed additional support measures, almost $2 trillion worth. And we all understand that more fiscal measures are in the pipeline, whether it is the expansion of the social safety net or an infrastructure bill. So what's your sense of all these things that are happening this year? So um, first, we had another economic package, a fiscal, a fiscal package in the beginning of the Biden administration, which when they started thinking about it, appeared to make a lot of sense. It was sort of, there had been a one at the end of the calendar year that was quite large, but we hadn't seen it work its way through the economy. And it was better to be safe than sorry and put out another package. But as that package was being developed, we thought it became quite clear that it was much larger than we needed. Economic projections were that we were going to return to strong growth this year. Um, most people were doing better income-wise than they had been before. Unemployment, we were starting to see good signs. So ultimately, I think the package that they passed, while structured in a smart way, particularly focusing on unemployment benefits, which is one of the most important pieces of this after spending on the pandemic, ended up being much too large. Probably it was about three times as much as you needed to close uh, a three-year gap in potential GDP and actual GDP, and very poorly targeted in that money still went to people who were doing better during the pandemic instead of worse. The reason this matters is threefold, I guess. Some people have worried very much about inflation, starting to look like that may indeed be a problem. Um, Secondly, it's a waste of resources if you don't need them, even when you're borrowing for the right reasons and it's the right time, you still wanna borrow the right amount and spend it the right way. And third, it undermines the credibility of when you start stuffing things into emergency packages that don't really belong there, which we saw, and putting in sort of priorities that um, are longstanding priorities, not just about fighting the pandemic, you undermine the basic belief that these are packages are what they are said to be. And so we worried about that second, that, that first Biden package a lot more. That said, it was better to do something than nothing. It was still an insurance package on a recovery. Um, could have been a lot better than it was. Now, looking ahead, there's two huge packages on the table. One focusing on more traditional, not more traditional infrastructure, but hard infrastructure, and one focusing on what's being called human infrastructure. These packages are in the trillions. Um, they are 
multiples larger than anybody's ever suggested before in this country. Um, and I think pretty much by all accounts, they are probably too big in that they are going to be giving more money to a lot of areas in the economy than people know how to spend. That said, they should have probably started with the that said. That said, they're really important priorities. Not only, as we talked about, is the history of the US on fiscal policy that it's borrowed too much when it shouldn't have. I would argue that the other piece of this story is it spent much more of that money on consumption and immediate gratification and frankly, money going to seniors rather than investments in human capital, um, growth of our infrastructure, uh, all of the kinds of things that you actually need for a longer term growth strategy. So I'm thrilled to see flipping the priorities on its head. Let's think about what kind of public investments to make as a bigger priority. But here's what we're not seeing. We're not seeing the shrinking of any other areas because that's the hard part of fiscal policy. How would you offset it by actually cutting some of the existing spending. Um, and we're not seeing it in the confines or, or, or like the overall frame of what's the big fiscal plan. The president has put out these two big initiatives before putting out his budget. So the budget's coming out after the trillions of dollars of new spending ideas. And what you really need is a blueprint for the overall country of what's the debt trajectory going to be? How overall are you gonna have spending and revenues aligning? And how do you want to shift your priorities? And then thirdly, how do you want to pay for them? On the how do you want to pay for them, I think the president and the administration gets good credit for saying they do want to pay for them. Um, there's a lot of arguments out there on all sides saying you shouldn't pay for anything. We can just wish away the costs. Um, so credit to the president and his team for saying we do want to pay for this. They do it all on tax cuts, uh, tax increases which makes it harder to pass in a bipartisan way, which they say they want to do. And the pay-fors last take too long to kick in. It would be about 15 years before this bill were, these bills were paid for, and we'd still be borrowing well over a trillion dollars in the first decade. The reason that's risky is when it comes to a political economy, easy to make the spending promises. They'll last. They'll probably last longer than they're supposed to. A lot harder to make sure those pay-fors last, and oftentimes we see them get repealed. So um, it's a mixed bag. I think the priorities make a lot of sense. I think the bills are too big and I think the pay-fors are not as credible as they need to be. But each new administration gets their priorities and at least they are saying now that the economy is strong, we should be paying for these rather than a lot of more um, uh, irresponsible approaches to fiscal policy where people say, don't worry, it will pay for itself or we can just print money. And the, those are the things that make me very concerned. Yeah, I want to talk to you about your view on MMT, but that we'll save that for a little later. Um, so as you said, that <laughs> yeah. a lot of things uh, are going to be first spending, and then over the medium term, the idea is to raise the revenue, and that would require, as you said, a trillion dollars, which is about 5% of GDP worth of deficit from here till kingdom come. Uh, is there sufficient confidence that between the U.S. financial sector and the global investor base, there is sufficient appetite to absorb all these issuance? Well, the people who are arguing for these policies say that they are completely confident there's no problem. You look at interest rates, you look at the concerns about interest rates in the past that didn't materialize, and we should almost be borrowing more instead of less. To me, this goes back to one of the important roles of fiscal policy, which is being prepared for all the different things that can come along, whether it's emergencies, natural disasters, wars, cyber assaults, or uh, a lessening of demand for U.S. Treasuries. 
I don't think it could ever make sense for a country to assume that there's going to be infinite demand for its debt, particularly when you know that other countries would like to rival the U.S. in terms of having a reverse reverse currency and other countries would like to diversify the debt that they own. I think that's a dangerous assumption. It could be that interest rates remain that low and the demand remains that high for decades to come, or it could be that things start to shift in the near future. I would say a strong country would never base its fiscal policy on the assumption those things won't change. Because the reason not to pay for things and to borrow, um, again, it's not economic. You actually have higher growth assumptions for many of these policies if you're actually fine, if you're paying for the policies rather than borrowing for them. It's political. It's politicians quite rightly thinking that voters love tax cuts and free spending. And of course we love that. Who, who doesn't love free stuff? But if you have politicians who are serving as real stewards and explaining that you need to make economic decisions that have lasting positive effects instead of kind of taking the gains from the future and bringing them today, um, I hope you can have a country that would support doing that. The problem is our high levels of partisanship right now are meaning we're not having enough politicians laying out the real choices, the fact that budgets are about constraints and choosing and asking the country to kind of choose which things are worth spending money on and what and then what things are worth paying for. Okay, so I want to go back to the short term just for a minute. Uh, when you were talking about the fiscal package that was passed in the last um, a couple of months ago, um, you sounded a bit like Larry Summers. So both Larry Summers at Harvard as well as Olivia Blanchard at MIT are arguing independent of the forthcoming bills, just the bill that was passed, that that was also too expansionary given the needs of the economy. But can we really be that confident about the path of the economy going forward? I mean, have we won the battle against COVID and the economy doesn't need that much support? Or is it really the case that, you know, COVID is behind us and we're on the cusp of a massive boom and therefore fiscal should not be too expansionary? Well, so first to say that I sound like Livy, Larry or Olivier is, um, first off, it's like, which Larry? Because Larry has different arguments every couple months. And I say this to him. I've actually kind of, I've had debates with both, friendly debates with both of them recently, because we are not aligned at all. Let me take each of them separately. So Larry has been, as you know, a huge proponent of the, the, the theory of secular stagnation and the need to borrow more on the investments that he thinks are right. And I think his case for which investments make more sense is correct. Um, but what I don't think he's owned it up to is he really was the big thinker who made the case, don't worry about borrowing. Interest rates are low, we need to borrow more. He's been making that case for a couple of years and he laid the foundation for the Democratic Party to come along and say, don't worry about borrowing. We should borrow all that we want. And then because it wasn't for the things that he wanted, and I, I think there's a strong economic case for why it's wrong, suddenly he's outraged and surprised. But you have to realize that when you have a platform that's that, that is that big, if you make those cases, they have impact. Um, so where do I agree with Larry? I agree that we did borrow too much for the package. Um, I was less convinced that we would have a problem with inflation. But as the weeks tick on, I think he may well be right. I mean, I think he did put it about a third chance we'd have really high levels of inflation. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's a real risk that that is a problem. Um, but my 
strong suspicion is he will go back to making the case that we can borrow borrow for lots of investments, which I would not agree with. I would say it makes a lot more sense to go ahead and pay for those investments because we're already borrowing so much for other things. And this goes to the Olivier case. So Olivier obviously has made the, the correct point that if your growth rate is higher than your interest rate, you really don't have to borrow worry too much about your borrowing if your borrowing is at a very manageable level. Because if you read his papers on this, he says, basically, if you're only running very small deficits or having a balanced budget, that's not the case in the US. The case in the US is that um, even before COVID hit, we were on a very dangerous path where we were going to be borrowing so much that our debt was growing faster than our economy forever. And so then your G versus R relationship doesn't apply the way it would if you had a structurally balanced fiscal situation. So I think his work is incredibly important and applies to a lot of countries and I wish it applied to the US, but it doesn't because we've already borrowed all this excess capacity or fiscal space that we have. We've already put that into plan. So the last question is, who knows where this pandemic is going? And, um, you know, I worry for a living and I sure worry about this one. I think just because projections are that everything was going to get better and the economy is going to be stronger, we have no idea whether that's the case or not. And, you know, as we know, it's, it's a big risk of other strains actually put the whole pandemic environment back in place. And we should be using this time to come up with that plan if that happens what is our healthcare response and what is our economic response? But what I wouldn't do is borrow a ton of money to agree to put in the economy before that happens. What we could and should have done is agreed to a lot of uh, economic stimulus measures that would go into the economy if certain triggers were set. So if GDP declines again, if the pandemic um, increases again, if we have to shut down certain parts of the economy, then these things would automatically go into place, whether it's checks or unemployment benefits or loans to businesses. So they're all tied to the economy. That would be the smartest thing to do. Even if it doesn't happen, Democrats who are in power and were more worried that Republicans weren't gonna join them in further measures, they have the ability to pass all of this legislation on their own because of the way our, our budget process works through something called reconciliation. So there shouldn't be any concern that we can't have further economic packages. So what I wouldn't do is pass an economic package in advance of anything bad happening. What I would do is tie it to triggers, both when you have more stimulus and then when you turn off when you have less. And even if we didn't put those triggers in place, we do have the ability politically to pass subsequent packages. So we shouldn't be concerned that we won't be able to respond. We will. Okay, so that's a terrific rule uh, to have. Are you seeing resonance among the Democrats in Yellen's treasury to that sort of a design of fiscal policy, triggers and contingencies and so on? There's a tremendous amount of interest, absolutely. Um, I will tell you, we look at it from both sides. We say that you should have things that when the economy goes down, it triggers more stimulus, but also when the economy is strong enough, it triggers the stimulus off and then puts in debt reduction measures. Um, and let's be clear about what this is. This is saying when your political system's not functioning like you wish it was, you actually want to talk about automation of the worst things. This is like automating the politicians. It's saying democratic process is leading us to be 
um, bias towards uh, irresponsible fiscal policies. So we need to make some automated policies in the other direction. It's kind of a sad realization that I think that would be the best thing. Yeah, there is some interest in it, but it hasn't been passed. So we don't have it ready for this these rounds. Um, but there's a lot of talk about it. We, in fact, run a whole working group on uh, triggers and how they could be structured and how they would work with a bunch of experts and it's connected to a bunch of lawmakers who are interested. So hopefully sooner rather than later that becomes part of our budget process. No, that's terrific. I mean, those sort of fiscal rules, I think, should be universally yeah. adopted. Uh, uh, we yeah. sitting in the IMF used to talk about those things, but I'm glad to see that there is some degree of those things happening now. Um, I love those fiscal rules reports. They're so interesting. They're really good stuff. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, Maya, going back to the issue of being blasé about interest rates being low and high debt ratio not really having an impact. Now, when we studied textbooks, they said that if you spend a lot of money, you crowd out private investment. Uh, looking at the U.S. over the last two decades, is there any evidence that the expansion of the deficit and debt has had a negative impact on the investment environment? You know, surprisingly, there is, despite the fact that interest rates are so low and we seem a wash in capital. There has been work, Ernie Tedeschi, who's now in the Biden administration, has shown uh, that there has been small amounts of crowding out. So yes, it does exist. That said, whereas it used to be kind of the top of the list of concerns one had about deficits and debt, for me, it's more at the bottom of the list now. And it's not that it's so much less of a worry. Um, it is less of a worry, I think, but it's that there's so many other things that are more worrisome. And in my mind, the true issues, the true areas of concern are one, we have an economy that uh, doesn't feel like it's a healthy equilibrium and it feels like things could change very quickly. And what I mean by that is it seems like there's a lot of bubbles, pockets of bubbles throughout our economy. I'm concerned about those. But if something were to change where interest rates went up, um, because our debt is so large, our interest payments would go up very much, very quickly. Kind of like a credit card teaser rate where somebody offers you a low rate, you get used to charging and then suddenly the rate pops up and you are in financial trouble. Um, not to oversimplify, but we have this problem. If interest rates go up by one percentage point, we would owe another $300 billion per year in interest payments. That's twice as much as we owe right now, which is already a lot. It's already over $2,000 per family. So um, what concerns me is our dependency on low interest rates. And then the second thing is our preparedness, which is we're very lucky as a country that we didn't run into trouble borrowing what we needed to this emergency. But no one needs to look far around the world to see that there are a lot of different emergencies on the horizon. Um, another round of the pandemic, cyber attacks, competition with other countries, natural disasters, a whole long list of things. Uh, changing in the workforce, the nature of work as automation becomes a big deal and we have to deal with huge disruptions in terms of the labor markets. All of these things need the US to be able to borrow when there are real reasons to do so. So I think the biggest concern for people should be US should always have, every country should always have a plan B. What do you do if emergency strikes? And by being so fiscally extended now, <clears throat> I think that plan B is dangerously compromised. Right. It's a bit like, you know, having zero interest rates and not any buffer to cut rates when the next crisis hits. It is. I mean, we have two toolboxes, monetary and fiscal, and both of the tools are kind of depleted. And so we're wondering, can you make up some more tools? Can you create some more things around it? But 
it's risky business. You would rather have replenished that toolbox box when the time when when things were going well economically, but we didn't because in the three years of the Trump administration before COVID hit, we borrowed like there was no tomorrow. We borrowed for tax cuts, spending increases, more tax cuts. It was a bonanza of fiscal irresponsibility, really reckless and really left us ill prepared. Um. Maya, earlier you talked about uh, coming up with spending plans without seeking any other offsets. Um, so I, I want to hear your view. You know, where would you cut spending? What's on your debt reduction wish list? Also, where would you raise revenues if it were up to you? Yeah, I guess I think about when I think about offsets for the president's um, priorities, and more generally, I guess I think of four buckets that apply to him, maybe three spending buckets. But this White House has focused all their offsets on raising revenues for high-income people. They have a promise not to raise taxes for any family making over $400,000. Okay, that's a choice you make. Um, and there's lots of places you can raise money there. Um, corporate tax increases, repealing some of the corporate tax increases, getting higher income rates, wealth tax, estate tax, capital gains, lots of things you can do there. Um, many of which make sense to a certain degree. You want to be careful that you're not going to the point where you're really harming economic growth, particularly because economic growth is such a big challenge because of our demographic situation. But that's one bucket, progressive taxes. A second bucket is more broad-based taxes. When it comes to traditional infrastructure spending, that's what we've usually relied on, things like user fees um, that I think make an awful lot of sense. I am a huge fan of a carbon tax. I'd love to see us moving on a carbon, carbon tax nationally and globally as much as possible. Um, and there are lots of tax breaks in our tax code as well that we could get rid of. Uh, we have about $1.8 trillion in tax breaks a year in foregone revenue. Get rid of a lot of those. So lots to do on the revenue side. I would make the point that the scale of the new spending initiatives that people are talking about is so large you can't pay for it only on the high income side and also bring your debt to a reasonable level. So if we're seriously gonna pursue huge expansion of federal government, again, which is some people want it, some people don't, our organization doesn't take a position on the size of government, merely that you finance responsibly. But if you want a government that's expanded as much as some people are talking about it, you can't pay from it all from the wealthy. Um, so there's progressive taxes, there's broad-based taxes, there's spending reductions. And on that side, I think there's lots of places we should look at. We should put back caps on the growth of our federal budget per year. It's been growing in discretionary spending double digit numbers in the past few years. And that's beyond what there's an arguable need for. Um, and I would shift, as I said, a lot of our spending out of consumption into public investments. Um, but the main issue is how you shore up our big programs, trust funds, social security and Medicare. On the Medicare side is hard. You've got to take real stab at controlling the cost of overall healthcare, which the US has a lot of improving to do. And a big problem we have is that a lot of the industries have captured kind of the interest in terms of how we price things and how we structure insurance and healthcare costs. That needs to be reformed. That's a hard political issue. Much easier is how you fix our pensions. Clearly, I would start with raising the retirement age. It's not gonna to apply to everybody, but those who can work longer really do need to. Um, we have life expectancies that are decades longer than when these programs started. I also think when you're looking at benefits, we should look more at means testing so the programs become more targeted towards people who really rely on them. And there is a backstop, but not a uh, guaranteed payment for people who don't. 
And I think this is a big tension in this country. Should programs be targeted or universal? But I'm in the camp of targeted. Let's get the money to the people who need it and where it's necessary. Otherwise, you're losing a lot of resources by giving it to people who don't need it to build political support. And that's a very expensive price tag, I think. Um, and so, so I do everything. Our fiscal situation is really bad. I would fix our entitlement programs. I would cut as much spending as possible, but I'd also grow some spending in public investment. I'd raise taxes on the wealthy and I'd raise taxes on all of us to some extent, though at the very low end, people who are really struggling, I'd try to figure out ways to offset those costs so that they are better off, not worse off. Because I think, I think the issues of income inequality and mobility are a real problem both in terms of what is right and also what is viable in terms of political and economic support. So you need to be cognizant of that, that tension between income inequality and economic growth and try to be really smart about how you structure those policies. Curiously, you did not mention defense. Ah, well, here's what I would do on defense. First off, I would leave defense to the defense experts. And I do read a lot of reports on defense because um, it's a fascinating time in defense. Um, For every dollar I would cut in defense, and there's a lot because I think the U.S. Uh, puts a lot of money into defense structures that are outdated and unnecessary and sort of captive interests are powerful there as well. But for every dollar I'd cut, I would probably increase in other places because I think the world of uh, defenses to a defense in a new digital world is so beyond what anybody understands. I don't think there's any way to say, oh yeah, you're fine. You're doing enough on cyber defense. It's a huge risk. And so uh, we're going to have to put more money in, in figuring out how you deal in a world where the competition and the warfare is incredibly different than it was in the last century. So defense to me is a, let's, let's, reshift all those resources, but I wish there were more savings to find. I'm concerned that there aren't. You um, have seen that the Biden administration is getting some resonance from foreign governments, especially in the G7, about this uniform minimum corporate income tax rate. Uh, what's your feeling about that? I think it's a terrific idea if it's workable. I'm just not sure if it's workable. I think Trying to tax capital, which is as mobile as it is in this environment, is increasingly difficult. And we can chase it, and it's fine to chase it. And I like the idea theoretically, but I think it's going to be very hard to make it work. So, right. right. But I'm, that they, they have some success, but it's, it'll be tough. Yeah, I, I, you know, frankly speaking, it, this has completely missed me before this actually came up in the newspapers a couple of months ago, and I'm kind of surprised to see that how quickly it's gotten some momentum. So, so uh, kudos to the people in the government who decided to push for it. I did not think that would be in the top of their war, uh, priorities, but they're actually getting some momentum. Not bad. I'm exactly where you are. I wouldn't have predicted that it would have had the staying power that it has so far. So let's see where it goes. Right. So Maya, you gave us a really good list of economically sensible areas where one can do fiscal policy reform, both in the spending side and the tax side. What is the political environment? I mean, what is doable in the near term? Nothing. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it, it is a wish list. No, I mean, that's not true. Credit again to the Biden administration for saying that they are going to try paying for things. And they're taking the easy ones, which is we're going to tax, quote Bernie Sanders, the millionaires and the billionaires. And that's sort of like makes it like a very small sliver of people who are paying for things and everybody else, it feels free. But 
it's a pay for nonetheless, and putting out the metric that we need to pay for things is very helpful. The bottom line is, as long as this country is more focused on the fight between Republicans and Democrats, the two parties, than it is on being serving as good stewards and coming up with sustainable policies, nobody is going to rush to pay for things or help put in place a plan to bring the debt gradually down as a share of GDP. That is what we should do. Once the economy is strong enough, which I hope it will be, and if it's not, we should borrow more. But once it is, we should pay for all new initiatives and put in place a plan to bring the debt down relative to the economy. That said, if both parties are more concerned about the majority swinging back and forth every two years, they are going to keep trying to find ways to give more things to voters and bribe them. And you're seeing this getting more and more direct. People are now in love with the idea of just sending people a lot of checks. Right. Here's the government. We're going to tax a lot of things and then we're going to send you checks and make you think that our party will send you bigger checks. That is. Um, that troubles me because I think it will work in the short run and do a lot of damage in the long run. So my hopes of that list of these revenue increases and these spending reductions um, put, getting put in place anytime soon is not strong at all. That said. I work for it all the time. There are members in Congress who are willing to do that and are willing to work together to do so because it needs to be bipartisan so that there's the political cover to allow these things to really uh, be effective. There are a lot of members of Congress who came here to work and do the hard work of governing and running a budget in a way that makes sense. The political leadership is not as bought in. They are more concerned about the political payoffs and that's where you end up with giveaways instead of actually paying for things. So uh, we work hard to keep it from being worse than it otherwise would be, but I don't see a grand bargain coming in place any anytime soon. So talking about giveaways and populism, I just wanted to end on a question related to political economy. I mean, the Republican Party used to be Newt Gingrich's balanced budget amendment, and the Democrat Party used to be Bill Clinton's, you know, the government, the era of big government is over and so on. Uh, things have changed in the last 20 years. Even economists think differently about fiscal policy than they did in the 90s, of course. But do you think that Donald Trump has fundamentally changed the Republican Party's approach toward fiscal policy through his populist measures? I do. I do. I think he's really one of the big things that cemented the, oh, giveaways work. Um, he came into office and he kept his promise, which was, I will cut taxes, raise defense spending, and I promise not to fix Social Security or Medicare. And he did that. He blew a huge hole in the budget. Um, it is not an issue that voters hold people very accountable for. I'm always trying to think of ways that we can do that more so. Like we have an individual debt audit on every member of Congress, which shows how much money they personally have voted to borrow. And I think that, that debt audit could be something that makes them more accountable than not when we, we won't. We won't share those for a while until we get through the recession. But when we do, I think that'll have some impact. But in the end, Donald Trump went straight completely away from even the talking points that the deficit matters and that that cutting spending was part of how you make smaller government. I've always found it laughable when Republicans act like the way you make a smaller government is to cut taxes. The way you make a smaller government is to cut spending. And that's a perfectly legitimate point of view, one which in many areas I share. But you don't do it by spending a lot and then not paying for it. You do it by not spending a lot in the beginning. Donald Trump just blew all those arguments out of the water. And many in the Republican Party are very uncomfortable with it, but many went along with it. 
And so I think, um, I mean, irresponsible tax cuts is not new. It's not that Donald Trump invented that, but that combined with not even the pretense of caring about other parts of the budget um, is sets a very, very dangerous precedent for fiscal policy going forward. I said that was my final question, but sorry, I have one more question before we end. Uh, we have to talk about a little more about politics. So going into the 2022 midterms, um, would the Biden administration strategy would be to sort of give away as many things as possible to cement what looks like a very difficult challenge to hold on to the House majority? Are you, are you asking if that's their strategy? Yes. You know, I think there's division within the Biden White House. Um, I think there are a lot of people in that White House who really worry about the risks of fiscal policy. It's not the number one risk in their mind, and it's probably not the number one risk in the country right now, but it is something that they worry about. And then there are others in the White House, and they tend to be the more political ones who say, let's give away everything we can. Let's run the economy hot. Let's make sure that wages go up, which is a desirable thing, but let's do so in a way by borrowing, running the economy hot for political objectives, which gets a little squeamish. And I think they will have a real tension as they try to figure that out. It is really hard for any one party to say, I'm gonna go first and become fiscally responsible when they think the other party won't. They both think they're locked in a negotiation with each other for the future of the size and shape of government. And that if one steps up to do more responsible policymaking, they'll just get taken advantage of. And I'm quite sure that that fear, and they're not wrong, you know, that that does happen. The political dynamics allow that to happen. But unless there is some kind of leadership that just says this is becoming a true threat, not just because of the debt itself, but because of the ways it leaves us vulnerable to all of these other threats that we are becoming increasingly aware of. If no one steps up to do that, then I worry they won't. They, they will use fiscal irresponsibility as a way to try to attract more voters. And we will be in much worse shape as a country if that happens and continues to happen as it has been um, in past years. Well, at least you and your committee have stepped up and are stepping up on this very, very critical matter. Uh, Maya McGinnis, thank you so much for your time and insights. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. It was great to have you. Uh, thanks to our listeners, too. Kopi Time was produced by Martin Tucky. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 55 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.